Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 114, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, welcome to this week's show, where we are going to talk a little bit about a subject that I think is kind of neglected in the grand scheme of retro gaming quite a bit. So everyone kind of goes crazy about graphics. And they're always talking about, like, you know, if you want to make a, a modern remake of a retro game or you want to set an emulator up, the graphics have got to be perfect. It's that pixel-perfect precision. But people often forget how important audio is. Yeah, and I've, I, you're right. I've kind of noticed with some emulators, like especially that App Games thing last year, you know, oh, yes. <laughs> people will be like, this is a great emulator, but they haven't actually plugged it in and tested the sound. And as soon as they hear the sound, it's like... Or skipping or not playing at the right speed. You know, it's amazing how... Different people have heard different sounds because of even with Sonic's soundtrack, you know, that was at a different rate, so it sounded fantastically fast in the uh, Americas. Oh, NTSC. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in the UK, we had a like, little slow Sonic that we're kind of used to. That's weird you mentioned that because I was watching that on YouTube the other day, and like this guy, he'd done like a PAL version of Sonic the Hedgehog, he'd done a little playthrough of, and all the comments are like, why is the sound slow? Because it's people that have played it on NTSC yeah. systems and never heard that. And I mean, that was kind of pre-internet, obviously. We didn't really know what was right. But I think you often get that. If you sit someone down in front of a game and the soundtrack is a bit off on the emulator, or like you said, that Sega at Games thing, it sounds a bit weird. A lot of people who are not audio people through and through, they may notice something's wrong with the game, but not quite be able to put their finger yeah, on exactly yeah. what it is. Not realise that, oh, it's just that this is an octave lower or yeah. something like this. <laughs> and the kind of guy we've got on today, Jerome Tell, is just one of the most fantastic sound guys. And this was for the C64, which had the SID chip, which was... Uh, we are not worthy. We are not worthy <laughs> of you, SID chip. And, you know, Jerome, he, he was a 12-year-old kid and he was bashing the metal. This was before any programs were kind of made to create sound on the computer. So Jerome was there you know, hacking away, and he was getting offered jobs by, oh, EA and stuff, you know, age 13 and 14. Illegal in today's day and age. Yeah, but probably. You know, <laughs> that was back in the 80s. Everything was all right then. But you're right. I mean, we're talking about, you know, guests that we've had on the show before, for example, before we came on. It was like Chris Hulsbeck's been on. We've had Rob Hubbard, legendary Commodore 64 oh, musicians. Totally. But Jerome is up there with them in terms of stature, isn't he? Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's there's... Great other ones like Martin Galway as well and, you know, Chris Abbott. And, oh. oh, you will get on one day, Oh, Robbie. yeah, we will. I'm confident in you. But, you know, you're talking about the Commodore 64. We did have a C64. I mean, probably a bit later than most people. My brother got one in about 1991, 92. Uh, quite late on. But I remember going into his room, like, loading up games and leaving the soundtrack playing while we did other stuff, like, you know, tidying up or reading magazines or whatever. Well, the soundtrack kind of helped set the pace, didn't it, of the game? And, you know, a lot of them would be platformers and they'd have that kind of bumping, boom, 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 or, or space shooters or something like that. And it, it very fit in with the rave stuff at the time. And I, <laughs> you know? Well, I think you look back then as well. I mean, the, the amount of crea- creativity the producers had because a lot of the times, as we've heard in previous interviews, they didn't get much of a brief apart from, it's a space game. Yeah, totally. <laughs> they have that to work with. So... Looking at the credits that Jerome's worked on, I mean, I remember playing Golden Axe on the Commodore 64 that was a great port, and the music was better than the arcade, in my opinion. Oh, definitely, and uh, Cybernoid, you know, as well, Smash TV. He worked for a lot of the companies as well, like Probe, and he also worked for Houston Consultants. He yeah. did a lot of different projects, and also disc mags and crack shows, so he wasn't just limited to this, and uh, he had a noise group called the Maniacs of Noise. And they were kind of very early on, weren't they? Yeah, very early on. You know, I think Rob Hubbard uh, used a lot of their stuff as well back, so... 
They all helped each other back then. <laughs> well, it, it is just, and I, I remember reading actually that the last ever game that came out on the Commodore sixty four was one that he worked on. Uh, that, the Lemmings, Lemmings sixty four. But a lot of people like what Lemmings came out in sixty four, nineteen ninety three. That came out, and if you haven't seen it, I'll, I'll put a link in our show notes. Check out the music on YouTube. It is banging compared to other platforms. Yeah. So I've got to ask him about that. Really excited about this one, Jerome Tell, the legendary. Chip Music Producer is coming up on this week's podcast. The interview will be on in around 15 minutes from now. And let's just take a moment to thank some more fantastic people. They are the people who allow us to keep doing the Retro Hour podcast and bring you fantastic guests like this week in, week out. And they're people who make donations into the running of the show. Uh, we do have a little PayPal link on the front page of our website, or if you're into cryptocurrency, um, think of it as a tip jar. A couple of quid in the hat that will allow us to keep producing the show, you know, pay for the costs and that kind of thing. It all really helps, guys. So if you can, amazing. If you can't, completely fine with that too. But you'll find your place in the Hall of Fame if you make a donation. There isn't a bigger accolade than that nope. in the world of retro. <laughs> and uh, this week, it's better than a golden joystick. Come on. Oh, definitely. That was cheap, wasn't it? <laughs> Spray-painted cheetah joystick. Come on. <laughs> uh, but this week, thank you for your donations and making your place in the Hall of Fame. Aidan O'Lone. Bart Pellens. Matthew Willits and Andrew Holland who all make donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. You can do the same via PayPal or crypto on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into this week's interview, we've got some massive news that we've been, we've been so excited to talk about this. You've been chomping at the bit, haven't you, Dan? How long have we known about this? Oh, it must be about, oh God. Six months? Six months, yeah. <laughs> and this is Play London. This is a huge event in the capital, you know, Londinium, the great city. And there's not been a retro show there for years, has there? Well, this is Play Expo, obviously the big event that we've done all around the country. And this would be like, what, the one to our third year now of doing Play Expo. Um, we've done events all over the nation, and then people are all saying to us, though, aren't they? Oh, I've just travelled up from London or Essex or Brighton. And even people that come from abroad, a lot of people land at Heathrow and Gatwick and then get the train up to Blackpool to come and play up there because it's such a good event, people want to come to it. Totally. But like you said, there hasn't been a high-profile retro gaming event in the think capital. there's been a retro store in the capital. There's been stores on the edge of the capital because it's expensive, you know, yeah. but... Um, there's not been any kind of huge retro event, so we're hoping this is going to be the one. And, you know, we're going to pull out all stops with this. This is going to be the retro hour stage with some amazing panels. You know, all these people have met up in these different events and in Blackpool and you know they've got a little community because that's been going on for years there's nothing like that in London so hopefully you can meet a load of new friends just go around and play consoles all day see some great talks yeah and that's the thing about play I mean it's not just um you know like a show because I know there is stuff like um something happening right now at the science museum like a, a console exhibition Mm. which is very cool, but it's more like a museum. Plays very hands-on. I mean, not only have you got a massive trading area where you can get you know bargains that are a lot cheaper than eBay, you've got, what, Sega Game Gear games for like yeah, a tenner but, each. But it's, and... not, it's not just that kind of gaming as well. There's a whole VR zone. Yeah. There's like board gaming there. There's pinball. If you're a pinball freak, you can just go and meet all the other pinball guys and talk pinball all weekend. You know? Yeah, pinball nerds. <laughs> you, are, yeah, yeah you, can, you can have your own <laughs> event. You know, it's great. Well, my like David, who I work with David Dunn, He's like a massive pinball fan. And he came to one of our events last year, brought his little lad with him, who was like nine years old. He never played a pinball machine before. And he's like, wow, is that the lights yeah, and everything? Yeah, like you know? 50 in a row, you know. It's really good. So you can turn it into what you want. It's a really amazing event. Recommend it to everybody. And the arcades as well. I mean, oh. it's kind of, that takes me back to like being 12 years old again, walking into a room with beeping arcades and that smell that you get in the air of all the cabinets plugged in. And obviously we're going to be doing the Retro Hour Talk stage, which we are planning to do our best one yet here at Play London. So if you want to get tickets for this, I mean, it's one not to miss. Right 
right in the middle of summer as well. The kids will be off school. Make a family weekend. Do the rest of London while you're there as well. And it's going to be happening on the 11th and the 12th of August at the Printworks in London. Have you seen the venue? Oh, my God. It looks like <laughs> a big, fat rave palace. I didn't know there was venues uh, kind of that big yeah. left in London. I thought they'd all been sold off to be expensive flats. Well, they do nightclub events and all that in there. So maybe a Ravi's rave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, ho- hopefully, if this one goes well, we'll see what happens. Now, before we do that, of course, we are going to be at the other end of the UK... Well, I'm going to be there. Dan Dan won't be there, but um, I'll be there with a couple of YouTubers and crew. Yeah, Kim Justice, uh, Slopes Game Room, um, who were in Blackpool last year. They're going to be coming along for uh, Play Expo in Glasgow. Now, this one's happening on the 9th and 10th of June. It's a little bit earlier, start of the summer, and... I think, you know, I'm, I'm really quite good at missing this one, actually, because I've heard there is a really good gaming scene up in Glasgow. Yeah, the thing about Glasgow is Play Glasgow is a new festival, so yeah. it's only been going for a couple of years, and they've never had panels. So we're, we're, we're going to try out some panels here, see how the Scottish gamers react. And the really cool thing about it is when we're in Blackpool... We got a load of Scottish gamers coming down yeah. anyway to join us because Blackpool's quite close. It'd be rude not to go and see them. Yeah, yeah. So now we're going to their territory. I think you know the, the real point here is wherever you are in the country, there's an event that we're going to be at that you can attend this year. That's not too far away from you, hopefully. And uh, we've also got a second one in Blackpool. It's going to be coming up at the end of the season as well, um, at the end of October. But you can get links to all these tickets are on sale for the events right now, and we'll be keeping you posted over the next few weeks on our website, theretrohour.com. The only reason I can't do Glasgow is because it's Samantha's 30th birthday. Well, who knows? It could be New York, Japan and uh, (laughs) Taiwan soon. I think then I might have more chance of convincing it to do a retro gaming event (laughs) on the birthday, but we'll see. So if you want to get your tickets put for any of those play events, we will be out hosting the talks. Head to our website, theretrohour.com. Now, speaking of things that are happening in London, have you heard about this? There's going to be a huge concert dedicated to PlayStation music. Oh, no, that's quite cool, because I knew there was concerts dedicated to individual pieces, like, you know, there was the uh, Tomb Raider concert recently, and there's been these uh, video game music live ones, but uh, what's this one about? Well, this is a dedication to um, the PlayStation, so it's by the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh, wow, they're they're one of the best in the world, aren't they? Yeah, I don't think you could really get much more prestigious than that, really. And uh, they're going to be doing, because, I mean, you know, they're kind of exploring gaming culture. That's what this is about. And there's going to be, if you haven't seen the Philharmonic Orchestra before, it's 80 strong. So it's a massive orchestra. And they're going to be doing uh, soundtracks from stuff like The Last of Us, uh, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, Little Big Planet. And essentially, it's going to be games that are from the PlayStation 1, 2, 3, and 4. So going back to the mid-90s. Oh, cool. So they'll be starting from the beginning and then kind of going to the later stuff. Oh, that that sounds really interesting. A bit odd. Love to go and see that because I saw DRS alive. Yeah, what was it? You love that, didn't you? Which was just absolutely fantastic. And seeing classical music in a big hall and stuff, uh, especially when it's about video games, you're like, oh, they're important. (laughs) What's the thing when you've got, I mean, Classic FM are behind this. Yeah. They're organizing it. And the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, obviously, involved doing the performance. Uh, Sony are behind it too. Well, the cool thing about Classic FM is I've actually... Oh, I listen to Classic FM quite a bit. <laughs> when well, you doing your gardening. Yeah, and I've actually <laughs> noticed that they start to cover a lot of cultural stuff now. So like this video game mm. music, but they're also covering stuff like sa- film soundtracks and Star Wars and all of this kind of stuff. So there's some great stuff to be heard on it. Well, apparently there's going to be like a light show that's going to be involved in this as well. And also they're going to be doing some kind of clever stuff with people's smartphones in the audience and control things. Oh, nice. Um, and tickets start at 20 quid as well. And it's coming up on May the 30th. So if you want to find out more about that, we'll put a link to get your tickets in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. 
Now, when we're looking for retro video games, if we're not at these big, you know, retro trading shows, choices are a little bit limited on the high street today as to where you can get video games from. Yeah, it's it's kind of degraded, hasn't it? It's like you used to have independent retro retailers everywhere and now you've got a few but then you've got pawn shops everywhere and exchange places and it it kind of reminds me of Judge Dredd when they go into the exchange (laughs) places and buy one of those big robots but um, (laughs) this is a story that's been picked up by Top Hat Gaming who's a great guy we met him in Blackpool and he's a got a YouTube channel. Yeah. Now, He's Top, doing very well at the moment as well. Yeah, he? yeah, because Top Hat Gaming is doing this kind of expose thing at the moment, yeah. which is really good. And he's found out a really interesting thing, actually. He's been buying games from CEX. Sex. <laughs> Sex. <laughs> That's <laughs> what they call themselves. And, <laughs> and this is the computer exchange place. Yeah. And basically, they're selling retro games without manuals. So what they've decided to do is photocopy the manuals themselves put them into the games and then sell it as a genuine thing. So they're actually counterfeiting manuals themselves. Wow. <laughs> or, or downloading them off the internet or something, I guess. Yeah, like well, well, he's, you know, put this up on Twitter and said, look at this, I've got this manual. And then it's like uh, Manuals Anonymous or something. Everybody's kind of posted pictures of all their copied versions of manuals that CEX has been making. And this is actual piracy because... they're they're owned by like Namco and stuff like that it's like CEX shouldn't be doing that well even in terms of the you know outside of the legality of doing it ethically we know you know we're not massive retro gaming collectors you and I we're more hardware guys in all honesty but I've got friends who are they want to get every game for every system boxed mint condition yeah that's the thing if you buy that and then you like open it up and it's a bloody photocopied manual <laughs> or a self produced and the the fact is he looked on some of the manuals and on the back it had a CEX logo right okay so it was like <laughs> they they weren't even attempting to hide it but it does increase the price of classic games to have the manuals included yeah so that that is pretty underhanded well, <laughs> well, he's done some great stuff on his channel. So there's been a recent thing about uh, Watch Mojo. Yeah. And they pretty much ripped off one of Larry Bundy's videos. Oh, like okay. 100% to rip off the script. Now, Larry is incredibly smart and he puts little fake facts in there. So oh, he'll really? be like, 1,009 copies were sold. You know, just to add that little edge. So he went to watch Mojo and said, you've completely copied my video because you've even copied the fake facts. And he put that in and they've taken his video down and apologised to him. Oh, wow. But yeah, they admitted that they kind of copied it. So check out his channel, Top Hat Gaming. He's the big paparazzi of uh, retro gaming at the moment. I do love YouTube channels like that. Like Review Tech USA is one of my favourite as well. And he kind of discovers all that kind of stuff. More of the American kind of focus. Mm. But yeah, I mean, they're just videos you can watch back to back and just like absorbed so much from them aren't they totally but it also shows that this retro gaming thing people are really getting on it and trying to make money out of yeah. it aren't they and don't rip off Guru Larry no, no. one should rip off Guru <laughs> no. Larry come on we love Larry now we had a pretty creepy story a couple of weeks ago do you remember we were talking about the fact that an, an artificial intelligence computer managed to find a glitch and get the highest score on Cuba yeah because they're training these AIs by playing retro old school games, which is kind of ironic. It's like, play your son. <laughs> it's weird. That's how Skynet is learning. Yeah. Well, now, I love this headline in here, actually. It's on um, allsretrogamer.com. Skynet can now play Gallagher. <laughs> okay. Now, do you remember Gallagher, like the old school um, yeah, yeah, shooter, yeah. one of the earliest arcade shooters? One of my favourite as well. I mean, I think I first saw it in the movie War Games when David Lightman's playing it in the cafe on there. I was thinking, oh, well, that's, that's a cool game. Then I, I found a cabinet of it at my local seaside. 
played it all afternoon. Love that game. And that game was copied so much as well. There were so many Gallagher clones everywhere. Oh, totally, yeah. You know, legendary arcade game. But now there is actually a program called Learn Fun and Play Fun AI. Now, this is built by a guy called Tom Murphy. And what it does, I've been watching a few videos about this. This is a program that you can download. And the way it works is... You play like an arcade game or maybe like a... It kind of works better with early games, you know, early 80s, late 70s kind of stuff, quite simplistic games. And say you you open an emulator, you record a bit of screenplay footage, you play the game for about a minute, try Mm -hmm. and do it well, and then you feed this video into this learning program, it will study your moves and learn how to play the game based on your moves in this video. Oh, cool. So this program... Wow, so you're just literally showing it a little clip and then it's understanding everything. Yeah, just from like a minute of you showing it what to do, essentially, which is pretty crazy. And they've actually put a video um, up on YouTube at the moment of this um, Learn Fun and Play Fun AI system playing Gallagher. Now, bearing in mind it had never played the game before, imagine if you'd like never played a video game before and someone sat you down in front of it and went, right, okay, go. You get three lives, bear in mind. How long do you think you'd last? Two minutes. <laughs> I've been playing the game about 30 years. I still lost about two minutes on it. <laughs> this AI plays for seven minutes. Oh, in this bad video, boy. And yeah. it doesn't even die. The emulator gets shut down because a Windows update happened on his PC. <laughs> so it could have still been playing to this day. God. But I think that is insane, isn't it? So, you know, what I'm thinking is, though, if this AI learns better and better and gets to be really good, what's to stop people uploading, like, you know, kind of long play videos on YouTube and have an AI play the ball and make oh, we'll really have to good. get We'll have to get one at Play Expo to sit next to us and kind of play on the arcade machine. <laughs> Just mime the moves yeah. to it, yeah. Wow, Ravi, you're incredible. Everybody learn from this guy. <laughs> it, it's kind of creepy but very cool as yeah. well, I think. If you want to download that software, I think it's free to download and install your PC. Um, a little bit of fiddling around with it, you know, you need some configuration, like taking out your, your start buttons and all that kind of thing, but it looks really cool. I'm definitely going to give it a go this weekend. So I'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. And tell us about this, a little project to preserve old computer operating systems. Yeah, this is really cool. So um, Yale Library are working on this absolutely crazy system, and this is to preserve everything. So it started when a visitor came to them and they said, you know, uh, they wanted to look at a CD-ROM-based multimedia website. There was a lot of them around back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was with this 1996 exhibition. So basically... They tracked down an old license of NT. They tracked down the old version of Netscape Navigator and Adobe Reader. And then they got an old HP tower and okay. got it all working on there. And they thought, oh, that, that's quite a good idea. But now what they've decided to do is create these in virtual machines. Okay. Because, I mean, that's the thing. If you want to get kind of, um, you know, the perfect replication of the hardware set up back then, it's quite a, a task. Isn't it, it is, yeah, yeah. And if you just want to play a certain piece of software, you have to create these environments. So they're saying that they're creating this kind of Rosetta Stone ultimate universal translator for old computers, but it's really slow because they've got to build every single little kind of environment and set up to run each program, make sure all the libraries are installed, all the drivers. You know, it's it's a very long-term project, but they're saying, you know, it will be browser-based. So okay. you'll be able to go on your browser, a few clicks and then load up your old information and anything that's corrupted you might be able to recover or any old lost data. But I think this is quite cool. It's like uh, software preservation. Like you you heard of the Chiroflux, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. That's a a wonderful system where you can read any floppy disk. And they preserve it like... To the bit, don't they? To the yeah. bit, yeah. So now you could use this system if you if you had access to Yale Library and then kind of 
boost it into an environment where you can get it running. Because I know you can do, obviously, like stuff like DOSBox. You can install old Windows stuff on there, but it's a lot of messing about and configuring it and everything. The fact this is browser-based. Yeah. And you're going to be able, I imagine it'll be drag and drop and have loads of different configs. And because it's through Yale, I think it's going to be, you know, a resource that's going to be there for a long time and used in educational institutions. All, all to get this old stuff working. Like, imagine how much information's still out there that's just sitting around on whatever media and just we haven't got access to it. And I bet a lot of it's really important. Yeah, and it'll be lost forever if projects like this don't happen. Well, what did they say in the last, I think it's the last 100 years, the most information's been lost ever. Well, yeah, well, probably in the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. But even like, I've got a Windows 98 PC that I set up last year to play some old like games on. But I thought I'd mess around with a bit of these kind of, you remember these classic multimedia things we're talking about here? Yeah. I tried to get like Encarta. I think it was the original one that I remember using at school. Like the 93, 94 version of it, I remember using when we first got CD-ROM drive at school. I thought, I wouldn't mind installing that. Managed to get the ISO file, but it wouldn't work in Windows 98. Even though that's quite similar to 95, apparently I did a bit of digging around. I found like some old newsgroup posts and they were like, yeah, it only works for Windows 95. I couldn't be bothered to actually set up another machine with 95 on. Yep. Haven't got hardware and drivers compatible with it. So it's either like virtual PC or you're looking at DOSBox and like you're talking a full afternoon to configure all that kind of stuff. Not really worth it to run in car in 1993, if I'm honest, but if you got this on a web browser, drag and drop it in. Yeah, and, and, you know, if there's lots of people contributing to it, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Absolutely. Which sounds like a great idea, this universal kind of emulator. And I'm glad that someone like, you know, an organisation to the standard of Yale are realising the importance of it as well. Yeah, totally. And just think how much old stuff's about there. You know, it's probably nuclear codes on some disks and stuff like that. <laughs> Quick, get it before it rots. Yeah, don't let that Learn Play AI thing play any of those. Yeah. Yeah, keep them well away. So if you want to find out more about that, I'll put that in this week's show notes as well at theretrohour.com. And of course, you can download next week's show from all of your favourite podcast clients too, every single week. One stuff like Overcast I've switched to recently. Yeah, Overcast is quite nice actually because you can download them and listen to them offline. Yeah. And because I was using Stitcher before or the iOS podcast app and I've deleted the iOS podcast app today because my phone ran out of room and I was like, it's really weird. I've got like, you know. Downloading every single one, wasn't it? In the background. Look at my usage, 60 gigabytes of podcasts on my phone. So yeah, I've got a lot more room on my phone since I deleted it. I find it's great for train journeys when you're going in the tunnels. If you download the podcast before, then you're not getting any cutouts. Yeah, and you can do it at home on your Wi-Fi. Yeah. Not, not rinsey data too. So we do get people asking all the time. So, I mean, we did actually do very well on the iTunes chart, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago? Were we number two? Yeah. I think the tech chart. Yeah. And we got a couple of comments going, um, oh, iTunes is all well and good, but I've got an Android phone and all that. So we are actually on pretty much every podcast client at the moment. That's the thing, because iTunes pumps out to everybody. And yeah. one thing iTunes, everybody doesn't know about iTunes is it's broken. It's actually broken. The charts are broken and Apple haven't fixed it. So oh, really? What's wrong with it? <laughs> It's just really inaccurate and crazy. Right, but not, not for where number two, surely. Very accurate. Oh, yeah, very accurate. Yeah, yeah. No, we, no, we, no, we, we should have been number one. All oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> yeah, get that sorted, Apple. And now let's go really old school, talk about Commodore 64 music. Our special guest this week is Jerome Tell. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Thank you for coming on, Jerome Tell. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now, we're going to get really in-depth about the Commodore 64 and the SID chip. We, we were talking before you came on, actually, about what an incredible chip SID was. And, you know, to this day, that is still regarded was, as one of the is. greatest... Oh, sorry, yeah, it still is, come on. But even to this day, <laughs> it is regarded as, like, one of the all-time legendary 
um, sound chips that's ever been in a computer. I mean, we'll get into your experiences with that very soon. But let, let's wind all the way back to day one. I mean, what was it that originally got you into computers then? Where, where did it all start for you? Technology always has interested me, like electricity and playing around with it. Electrocuting myself many times over, but <laughs> um, whilst playing with it. But um, you know, at some point were like this little tools like a like the first calculator came out like it was handheld a texas instrument a really small one was uh, pretty expensive at the time had to have it and it was not known not normal that you would have a calculator maybe just for some businesses or something you know with paper in it and everything but uh, that was it and then there was like this really small with lcd screen i could multiply divide uh have the square root out of the number but it was just something that was mesmerizing to me and maybe i was five or six something like that then at eight, there was this Casio watch coming out, which had oscillators in it. It played like songs like "Oh, When the Saints Were Coming In" and all that stuff, you know, children's songs basically yeah. or holiday songs. But it was mesmerized by the oscillator that it had such pure sound. It was like someone programmed this. Someone programmed those notes. I want to program those notes. I make music uh, on the piano, but I want a computer to actually make sound that I can program just like this Casio watch did. At 10, I got a ZX80, I borrowed one actually uh, from my uncle, and um, and I was like, I, I tried to beep command, and I could actually program for the first time notes on a computer. That was nice. And then uh, in 1982, Commodore 64 came out, and a friend of mine bought one. I heard something, and the the, the earliest games had very simple music. This is okay now. I got just I ditched the ZX80, I gave back to my uncle, and uh, me and my brother we actually bought Commodore 64 actually to play games, but also I started programming in basic, programming sound chip basically, and making hear plays and sounds, and I really experimented with it, uh, with filter and pulse width, and yeah, I read the book, of course. But I got mad, so mesmerized, I actually started making complete um, songs. Unfortunately, all of them, the big songs are lost. They were saved on tape, and those tapes are gone. So well, let's uh, not talk about it. It gets me sad. No, anyway. <laughs> well, what was uh, the uh, what was the kind of demo scene like in the Netherlands back then? And uh, when it was really early on as well. Yeah, really into that uh, scene. It was like a lot of friends, you know, mostly kids, about 14, 15, 16, um, getting together and showing each other their coding, their graphics. Um, not music at the time, because there was no one making music, actually. Yeah, so people came from um, from all over the Netherlands and also from Germany, because it was really close to the border of Germany and Belgium. And um, yeah, it was, it was jam-packed, basically, and... Good atmosphere. The funny thing was, it was, it was some kind of uh, you know demo wars going on and group wars. Yeah, that was it was a kind of childish in a way, but you know that was part of what it was then back then. But most of it was really friendly and just showing each other, you know, showing each other what they could do and learn from each other, basically. When you got your Commodore sixty four, then I mean, you started making music on that, and I heard you were like thirteen, fourteen years old and going around computer shows to play companies yeah. your music. I mean, what give you kind of the the idea to do that and it must have took a lot of confidence for a kid to go out to like these big companies and show them your music um well as i said i put in the hours to actually get good somehow uh well maybe meet up with the right people getting the right tools like i went to amazon to get a commerce 64 programmers reference guide which is the commerce 64 bible and a power cartridge which i needed both and turbo assembler the software by uh, alex schultz um, to actually um, well, program the music in uh, machine language. We already released, I think, it was Scooby Designs, uh, Noisy Pillars, yes, that was the first one. Yeah, we were confident about the music. There was not, well, there was only Rob Howard, Martin Galway, Ben Douglas, not many others, I think. And um, yeah, I, I definitely felt like I was up to speed with uh, with that 
well, not not the level of composing, but the sound was good, and well, I knew what I was doing. And uh, well, Charles actually opted so we, we can just go to the conference show or the PCW show at the time, which later became ACS. Big show, really big. Well, we just had a couple of discs, well, a dozen of discs, dozens of discs with us, and we just handed them over to Electronic Arts, Ubisoft, and all that, Activision. And uh, there was always there, there were the setters of Commodore 64, so most of them had like this private booth, and they would just load it up, and they would hear the music, and uh, see this kid standing there. I was 14 at the time. And, and then they asked, like, uh, did you make this music? Said, yeah. <laughs> They're like, no okay, way, kid. It's, yeah, it's something like that all the time. It's like, okay, um, well, it's excellent. Um and they, they just uh, handed over uh, business cards and, and we left her. Well, the disc already had the, the, our contact information on it from actually Charles. Charles was a little bit older than me, one half year, something like that. So he would, would take care of the, the logistics part of that, I think. You got offered jobs by these big companies when you were like 13. It was 14, 15 ish. Um, the one thing is like the, the, the most interesting story actually was from that PCW show, uh, one of them, I think it was the first one actually. Uh, I got to meet the people from Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts was was kind of a growing company, but they were not like as huge as they are now. And uh, they really were keen on getting me. And they said, "Well, they didn't they didn't know my age because I didn't say my age. And I looked a little bit older because I had a little mustache or whatever. I really have clue." But they actually sent me a contract that they wanted me to work for Electronic Arts. But I had to call them up, say, "Okay, at the moment I'm only 15, and uh, my mom doesn't allow me to move to the states." <laughs> Uh, on, yeah, just literally like that, you know. I'm, I'm, and they said, you're only 15. And they just, uh, my, my mother didn't allow it. She said, you will finish your school. And uh, yeah, after that, you can do whatever you want. But it was so funny that I had turned electronic arts down. And then they asked Rob Hubbard. <laughs> That's it. And uh, how was the UK scene compared to being back home? Because you obviously flew over to see people. Um, at the time, it was actually um, a bit of a wild west in video games. It was... Um, not much was really professional about it. it. Of course, there was big money going around in it um, for the publishers. Um, but it was a bit of a wild west of uh, video game production, programming and development, and uh, wild west in publishing too. It's like uh, not, nothing was like as streamlined as it is now. It was all pretty haphazard. I didn't know the industry. I was, I was well, I was a kid. I was more into it like, okay, um, I want to make music for video games. That was the whole thing. And I got that vision when I was uh, playing I think it was Taking on the Spring with music by Rob Hubbard. And when I heard that, is, is that... French, but this was literally like, go, this is like, this is awesome. This is, and I was, I was blown away already trying to make music just for fun and stuff. But then I realized I want to make music for video games. I really do. Was that when you kind of formed Maniacs of Noise and uh, a dedicated no, was, sound company? I first came to the conclusion that I wanted to do music for video games. And when I got really dedicated to learning this thing completely, getting into machine code or whatever I could do to well, make professional um, professional music program to, to actually do music for games. That, that was the whole thing. And I couldn't do it myself. I, I needed help at, at the beginning. Um, and that's what we're, you know, I uh, contacted. Well, I contacted, I met him at the Vandal parties. Um, and yeah, we got uh, hooked up basically. Uh, and engaged with each other in the uh, to to form Maniacs Noise in the end. Well, how um, hard was it to kind of make music back then? Because now we have like trackers and lots of programs. Mm-hmm. Back then, mm-hmm. I guess it was just like routines and bashing the metal. Really, I was so used to programming my music in hexadecimal numbers. I still prefer to do that for the Commodore sixty four. Literally, 
put input dot byte c1 for sound eight four for length and then the note or a pedal table and then a note and it, it's like note script to me it's musical script to me it's like if you have musical script paper right right in front of you same thing for me that's how i wrote it down even in school when i had a music ideas just start writing down next decimal numbers and it's so it's actually the fastest way to compose because i don't hear what i do with my fingers that means like if you play a keyboard or a track of thing you hear this note being played you get can get distracted from the original idea. I composed them. I had programmed it in, then assembled it, see if it was right or not. When I was a mistake, it would uh, just uh, change whatever was wrong. Uh, add some stuff to it, assemble it again, hear it back. But I didn't assemble that many times because most of the time I just had a vision of uh, what what needs to be programmed. And it's a very fast way to do it actually, because I, I did use someone to write press rules book uh, when it was out nineteen six or something. It was really nice, but it was huge and invested of time, and, and it doesn't do what I wanted. It's like I have really programmed wave tables and uh, program, programmed the standards instead of having portament on from one node to another. Exactly time it like the portament starts here, and it goes uh, to that node at this speed. Um, yeah, and and vibrato like uh, well, right now you can have vibrato on and off node. I just want to have a fixed node after um, let's say three tenths of a second, the three sixteenths of a note. Then to, to the, the, the vibrator start and um, also want control over how fast it starts. Does it uh, start to, to vibrate and then go higher in amplitude or do I want an instant uh, amplitude uh, vibrato like an opera singer? Just I wanted to control all of that. To, to actually program the, the, the notes like that uh, was, was a very easy way for me actually to do it. It becomes such a routine. If you do this like, uh, well, thousands and thousands of hours every year, it's second nature. You don't have to think about it. It's so easy. Well, but if, if someone if someone looked at, at me programming this stuff, um, they were like, "What? The, what the hell? Are you programming music right now?" <laughs> did you guys share software and kind of share routines and ideas? And did you notice a lot more people kind of making music then? Um, when I started, I don't think there was that many people actually making music. Um, there were some, maybe. Uh, we, we were actually pretty protective of our meaning of noise routine because it was uh, our well property, basically, and it gave us our edge. Not that we were, at the time when we went to this PW show and the Commodore show, we had so much work to do that we always declined some of the projects. It was everybody wanted to use meaning of noise, basically. Um, well, mind you, I was still going to school, and uh, so was uh, Charles, but we did everything on the side, well, mostly at night, of course, for me. Uh, I didn't sleep much in my youth. Well, anyway, it was totally worth it. But the one thing is we always were busy. and uh, But we didn't share routines, no. The, our routine was hacked a lot for a few to compose or whatever. Not in, in hindsight, I think, okay, whatever. I don't, I don't care. But at the time, I was really fed up when someone would do that and just start using our routine. And But, um, yeah, that was just me being a silly kid. Or maybe an uh, maybe ambitious kid or, I don't know, I put in the thousands of hours and someone just rip it off just like that and pluck the fruits of what I saw. Of the trees I grow, that was a bit off for me, and also for Charles. I mean, yeah, it's okay. Um, but there was no 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 real music uh, musician scene or something at the time. I don't, didn't know any musicians. I knew a lot of graphics and programmers, but not musicians. They all ripped like the the demo makers or something. They they ripped music from from games by and always music by Rob Hubbard or something and Melvin Galway, Van Dokkers, all that stuff. Well, no, Maniacs of Noise. You guys were you know quite well known on the on the crack tro and the music disc scene as well. Um, I mean, was that an important element to the community? That's a very good one. Before, as I said, even the, the intro and characters, they always had music by from games by Rob Howard, uh, music by Rob Howard, Martin Galway, Ben Douglas, and then we well, we did this 
Well, that's the funny thing. I always did these fun, just for fun tracks too, and those were really uh, the ones used were lost, used a lot for the crack crows and yeah, and demos and stuff. But that was just the just for fun stuff um, because you know we always like have to make music for a game. I, I make music to make people happy with my music and my notes, and I always did that also for myself. Um, and those are the cooler tunes and the shorter tunes and the more catchy tunes, you know, like what a teenager likes. And, uh, well, when it comes to Corner 64 version, I think that makes it different because I was a really young guy. I was a teenager and all the other guys were like in their mid-20s, older than even. It was a big difference. So I was more linked to the, the culture that the Corner 64 was actually populated by, which was kids playing video games. And, well, these kids also listen to pop music. And I was more in that, that zone, you know, with the... Uh, Madonna and uh, whatever was uh, hit, hit songs back then. That was more my vibe. Not that I was a big Madonna fan or something, but I, I, it was the, everything that was the, back then for 80s hits or something really influenced me too. And I was able to bring that to the Commodore 64 somehow. And well, because of the limitations of the Commodore 64, make it like even more melodic or funky or something like that. But it, it, that concept really worked. And um, what's more interesting thing is that then now the whole electro scene. <laughs> The old pop, pop scene and even music scene, you hear 8-bit sounds everywhere. Yeah. Arpeggios everywhere. I even was asked to do um, uh, additional synth, well, actually synth sounds to uh, rock songs from Stagma. The Stagma band is a compilation band with uh, rock legends. Um, I was kind of amazed when I heard the names, um, like musicians uh, uh, from Ingo Malmsteen, ACDC, Dio, and all that stuff. And it's like, okay, and I did it, um, and it actually works really well. But uh, yeah, it's like it, 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 it's it's hot right now, and I, I think I know why, because people got used to it. Uh, the thing is that there's a whole generation growing up with parents who have played these video games. Um, th- their kids, of, of course, are exposed to this from a very young age. Uh, there was this whole... Uh, thing with the ringtones coming by where everybody was actually buying ringtones and playing ringtones with their Nokias and everything which was just an oscillator basically yeah. and people got used to this sound so much um, that you know it was embraced by culture basically and by the general uh, culture and it became yeah, a thing right now the retro scene is uh, hotter than everything everything has to be pixely and everything has to be um, I don't know. So, bit, bit simplistic is yeah, less is more basically. It, it, it is crazy though because I remember a time when everything had to be really highly polished. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of you know when music producers started putting the sound effects of vinyl onto CDs, like crackling over the music. It's like trying to get it back to roots and back <laughs> a bit more analog, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> funny. Well, how was it yeah. working with um, with Houston Consultants? Things you worked with them, didn't you, back in the day? Yeah, it was a pleasure. Um, the, the big boss, basically, a very kind man. He um, was a big fan of our music, and uh, really eng- got us uh, engaged in, in doing uh, the tracks, uh, tracks for Cybernoid, Cybernoid to for a Battle Valley. Battle Valley was actually one of the early, really one of the earliest one. He, I think, it was actually the first one I did on commission to work uh, for Minix of Noise, apart from Hawkeye, because Hawkeye was more privately with my friends, basically. Well, y- you managed to work with. Quite a amazing list of companies here, especially in the UK C64 scene. We, you know, had Mastertronics, you had yeah. Houston Consultants, Infograms as well, System Free. Um, who would you say was your favourite kind of people to work for and uh, what were their briefs like for music? Proof Software Limited, 
that was uh, the company that made most of the productions basically for a lot of uh, different publishers, US Gold and for Ocean Software. Um, but they were a production company. They were really a video game developer who worked in, uh, on some projects they did it on their own and then searched for, um, for a publisher. But most of the time, publisher came to them to develop a game, for example. Um, um, for example, yeah, they needed a, um, a re, a, yeah, just a, a game from a existing movie. Ocean did this a lot of uh, times. Um, also, how came, Robocop 3 came to be. It was, uh, it was a bit later, uh, I'll tell you that, but um, there was Alien 3 for the Nintendo and everything. So I also diversified a little bit, to, not just to be on Commodore 64, but also on the Nintendo. Mm-hmm. That's quite some, well, not, not too many, but that, what the music I did there was actually excellent. But they were, okay, the, the company was run by Fergus McGovern. God have his soul. He has passed away a couple years ago. Um, but um, yeah, he was really like uh, a fan of my music, and also gave me a lot of uh, freedom uh, to work for, uh, with them. And um, yeah, he gave me freedom to not be that. He, he didn't produce me too much, and he didn't have his producer to produce me too much because he believed in that I was uh, really good at uh, describing the atmosphere of the game within the music. And um, that was a really fun thing, of course. And um, I started actually going traveling there when I was 16 already, and during weekends or holidays, uh, to work at their at Tam- Tamworth Road in East Croydon, at their offices, and then you know I would uh, go back home and go back to school. <sighs> really weird. What did your parents think of that when you were so young? Uh, they liked it actually. Uh, they were but at the beginning they were a bit, were a bit wary, but they already let me go to this piece uh, of show. They 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 saw that I was really passionate about the whole thing. Um, well, they did say, okay, please finish school and everything, but uh, they liked that I'm, I showed entrepreneurship, I think. Yeah, they left us a little bit free. I mean, I think most parents would not have done that, so I thank them very much that they allowed me so much freedom actually to travel and to, you know, do all this stuff. It must have been fantastic going oh. over and uh, kind of seeing Probe. And what was the atmosphere like back then? Absolutely brilliant. It's like... Um, it's, it's a very mixed uh, crowd, basically. Well, it would, I would say some of them are like more the hippies of the video game industry. The, the, um, yeah, okay, well, people call it nerdy or geeky anyway. But more like the, from the normal breed of people, more business-like or something. But also the one thing was everything was fr- uh, friendly, creative, um, helpful. Um, it was a very, it was a new industry. I mean, you, you felt all this, this new energy flowing around. Like everybody, everything you did was new. Everything that was everything he did was maybe not done before, and that 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 atmosphere was something that was really um, around every, everywhere. I mean, also in all the other studios, it was um, it could be in, innovative for anything and um, do one thing for the first time. And the, a, a new scroller for a racing game like Simon Nickel did it was like it was legendary, and um, I played samples on some on, on the Commodore 64 and, and like oh, terrific quality, but. That atmosphere was in everything. Like, okay, I found a new way to anti-alias stuffing or make new colors with mixing all this stuff, you know, and you felt this, that it was a, a very creative crowd, basically. Very creative people. Inspiring. A very inspiring environment. That's actually a good, good word for it. Well, one game I remember that you did the music for was that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the C64 <laughs> yeah. and, and the Amiga. <laughs> I mean, obviously that was a yeah. massive cartoon at the time. And it had a very recognisable theme tune. Yeah. I mean, was translating a song that's kind of already known to everybody into uh, a computer game, was that a bit of a challenge? And how did you approach that? Well, that, that was never a challenge. Uh, the one thing is I always ask, can I freebie on this? Can I, like, uh, recompose it or something? Well, uh, depending on the 
uh, company, uh, the publisher basically, if that was allowed or not, and most of the time, for example, like Teenage Mutant, it wasn't actually allowed. I still, I still did it um, and see if I could get away with it. And if I wouldn't get away with it, then I would hear about it and I would just program the right notes or something. But I thought that would really fit the video game better or something like that. And most of the time I got away with it, which was a lot of fun. I mean, also for Afterburner for Sega, I actually changed the notes and add, add, added to it. Um, Outrun was actually a very good example that um, I just... Uh, <laughs> went all the way in um, doing what I did and they loved it so they just left it they kept it that way but it was nice to actually take a theme a theme that was for a game that was already there or maybe a movie and sometimes you know step away from it completely like Alien 3 well um, there's nothing I can do with the movie music well I could but it would not have impact at all because you know people know the, the, the movie Aliens or Alien and but they but they don't know the music. It's it's really typically um, movie music that is more an underscore of something, and it, it doesn't have a theme. Yeah, it's more orchestral. Well, it's orchestral. Yeah. Okay, Indiana Jones is orchestral too. Everybody knows that. Hmm. That's really typical stylish stuff. And I, I believed, in, and that was a very uh, strong point, to have a title tune, especially a title tune, that would really stand out, that would be identif- which an ident- identity for the game also. I mean, if you now, if I say Cybernaut, you don't think about the, the game, you just think about the music, for example. Well, you know, you're working on these massive titles like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Alien 3. I mean, you know, essentially you were doing the soundtracks for, you know, conversions of these massive blockbuster global franchises. It must have been pretty cool to yeah. be working on such projects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time it was like um, Blast and, and they just kept coming like that. And well, it's inspiring them to do the absolute best you could, you know, and um, there were like days I would, uh, because it was most of the time we had a very quick turnaround for uh, for making a game. As you know, it's like now this um, this movie's coming out, and or it's already out, and now we need a, a, a very good video game fast for this. And everybody would work like crazy hours. We're talking about fourteen hours a day, easy, even uh, sleeping in the offices and stuff. I mean, I, sometimes I just spent uh, forty hour strikes on working. Uh, sometimes going out to eat and maybe a um, quick shower or something, but then just work, work, work and not sleep. And then and when I would be done, I would crash for a day, a day or something and then go back there and start another crazy project. <laughs> <laughs> but you knew what, what you did it for. It was for like a you know, massive, massive title. It was always nice to do. Um, yeah, and still, so, so we, we were young. I mean, I started working in House for Probe, for example, for, uh, when I was 18. So old nice story how I got there and... Uh, that I dodged the army because of it, actually. I had so much energy, and everybody had that energy. So it was, and this inspiration kept us going and, and everything. And it was really inspiring, and especially having these big titles that really helped. Um, I mean, seriously, for, I think it was actually Robocop, yeah, Robocop 3 on the Nintendo. I remember starting at 1 o'clock at night. That was what my the, day, the start of my day. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I sat down and then I started uh, programming this music and uh, straight from the head into assembler. And um, on this Nintendo development kit of fifty thousand pounds, I remember <laughs> it was from the company, um, licensed by Nintendo. And um, I think it was about eight nine o'clock in the morning. I was finished with the whole thing. Talking of the Nintendo, then, I mean, how did you find the, the NES to produce music on? So they did, like, Bram Stoker Dracula on there as well. And what, how did you find that coming from the Commodore 64? Well, I found it was very limiting. Um, Commodore 64 had uh, full pulse of modulation. They only had um, 
two channels, FF channels, that you could uh, only play a pulse wave on, no other wave, and only with the settings 12.5%, 25%, or 50% pulse E, A, and O. E, A, O, A, E, O, E, That's it, okay? And so people didn't even think about making a sound like pulse wave modulation, but I alter, alternated between them anyway, so you had a little bit of that 64 vibe going on it. And that really worked, uh, but it was very limiting compared to COM64. Service two channels FM, one channel more like a sine wave-ish low. Um, actually, it became a kind of a feature of that thing. It's a very specific sound. It was actually a pro- programmable, pro- programmable waveform thing and a noise generator. So it was actually uh, four notes polyphonic, but very simple. But it, um, yeah, somehow to just um, you work, you see it, the sound, you put the limits are, and then you work with the limits. And, uh, well, there's one thing like this low uh, channel, this third channel, where you had a low output bass sound to it. Combined with the, with the, the noise channel, you could really make great drums with it, like a tsh, tsh, like that, you know. And on the Commodore 64, you had to alternate between ways, and you could actually use that on top of each other. So that was, and you would have a really cool sounds. But it's like using the feature of the this limitation of the chip. That's always uh, the good thing. But compared to the Commodore 64, rubbish. Well, you actually worked on um, one of the final, if not the last Commodore 64 commercial title. You did the music for Lemmings on the Commodore 64. Yes, 1994. How did you approach <laughs> that then? And because that was a very late game, wasn't it? Um, well, it was um, they said lemmings couldn't be done on the Com64 because of all the amount of uh, little guys running around, the lemmings running around. And I think it was uh, Remy Ebers, um, he's from the Netherlands. Um, he got in contact somehow with uh, Psygnosis and um, he said, well, we can actually do this because we have a very good programmer, very good graphic designer and a very good musician. And he just mentioned the names and he was like, well, if you can do it, uh, why not? It would be fun to actually uh, have a final release on the uh, Commodore 64. And it's popular enough. I mean, Lemmings was extremely popular at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, that's right. I mean, seriously, it was like uh, everybody was playing Lemmings. Or even girls were just completely obsessed with it. Um, yeah, so we managed to to develop the whole game. And um, so it came to be. But it actually was one of the last, if not the last, uh, commercially released title at the time. Because after that, it was a big... Break of, no, break of nothing. Now people are releasing on the Commodore 64 again as kind of uh, as a niche, I think, right? Well, I love the soundtrack you did on the Commodore 64 on, on Lemmings because, you know, it doesn't just sound like the Amiga version. You've got that really kicking bass line on there. It's like, it's really, really good soundtrack. <laughs> and I mean, did, I guess you didn't just want to kind of replicate the Amiga version. You wanted to make it your own, did you? It had sound 64 and I really wanted, well, I really wanted it to be my own because there were covers from like existing... Uh, popular melodies anyway, you know, like children's songs. And but anyway, just uh, yeah, I just uh, had a conversation for two channels uh, to my uh, disposal, and I was like, yeah, let's make this fun. <laughs> well, out of all the kind of tunes that you've made and projects you've done, which, which ones have you enjoyed the most, and why? It's a very good one. I think uh, Tomcat F fourteen is one of the songs I really felt accomplished by making. I still love the melodies, by the way. It's very complex. It's technically brilliant. Um, but when it comes to like uh, having a really good structure, a very good theme, highly inspired, not more technical, but more like musical, musically inspired, this could actually really be a classical piece, would be a supremacy. It has a theme which is absolutely catchy, um, completely inspired. Um, it has a structure of 
dynamics of an orchestra. I had the orchestra in mind when I programmed it, actually. Um, composed it, I should say, uh, whilst programming it. And it has this whole structure, and it's absolutely catchy. And it actually is one of my, well, the most celebrated tunes, too. But it's one that I can really put on a thousand times and still enjoy it a thousand times. It's just that simple. Is and, it- yeah, I think that one is a... Is a it's really the one that I would. Uh, well, actually, I'm remixing it right now. I've been working 80 hours on this uh, remix, and just doesn't this one? It's actually right in front of me right now. It never gets boring somehow. Well, what about ones that you're not too keen on? Then, are there any that you look back on and think, "Oh, I could do better than that now"? Yeah, well, Night Hunter comes to mind. We um, Ubisoft was really on our, on our asses. Like, okay, we need this like tomorrow. So, will you will you take it? And I said, "Yeah, why not." And um, but I got a bit uh, carried away with the uh, sampling, use samples, and um, I ran out of time basically. And it was a Friday night, I think. And I actually went into town with my brother. <laughs> it's kind of a funny story because we we actually started recording like the samples, like a burp here and um, like <laughs> or whatever there. And um, in the end, I thought, yeah, when I come home, I will just redo some movie. A pro, uh, proper things, but we came home really late, and I still had to do delivery on Friday or Saturday. So uh, Charles would come on Saturday and pick up the music, and I, I just had to have it. So I, um, I actually didn't bother to sample more samples because I already had some really good ones, and uh, started programming the music, uh, the title tune at least. And yeah, well, what came out is actually pretty good, but the songs, <laughs> some songs, if you hear this burp in between, okay. I imagine that could be a monster that just ate a skull or something. Basically, that was uh, <laughs> how I could justify that one. Uh, but it was it's still funny. Um, but I, if, sorry, if I had more time for that one, because I was really inspired, actually. But more time to finish that one, then I would have put so much more detail into it. But you, you, there's always going to be these productions that you're not going to be uh, 100% satisfied with, especially to, to the deadline that came up sometimes. Uh, they want like a seven-minute piece but they want it tomorrow. Yeah, okay. Um, good luck with that. Then you can expect there to be some kind of trade-off between quality and um, uh, quantity. I mean, I'd rather make a four-minute really excellent one than a seven-minute uh, rushing a deadline uh, where the quality of the well, the minutes that are there is a little bit less. It was always – well, I think it was always still good. I mean, I never lacked inspiration or something like that. But you, when you can really sit down and – Pay attention to a little bit of the detail, like legato, staccato, or have some crescendo or some so some nuances. Like you can program an echo by filling in the the gaps that are silent with an echo from the last note, for example. These things make a difference, especially with chip music. I would really run out of time when I did Eliminator. Um, it all also had to have a title tune, and I completely forgot about that. I was completely engaged in this uh, this in-game stuff, and I made it a very long one, seven and a half minutes or something. I don't know what it was, but six minutes? I, I don't know what it was, but I was really, I thought that was it. But I said, yeah, no, there was a specification, or a title tune. And I tell you this much, um, I had the sounds ready, um, so I could just start making music, programming music. But Charles was already on his way uh, from, well, uh, where he lived in Holtes, and he would be there in like one hour. Wow. So I had one hour to do that tune, <laughs> if that, you know. I'd made it a melody in my head. I just programmed like a maniac. And I thought I did something too simple or something, but it turned out to be actually a very nice tune. It was because it was actually beautiful in its simplicity. When I hear it now, I really like it. But it was, of course, if I would 
I would not have written this song this way when I would have had like a day for it. Then I would very like be very extensive, but it's uh, it's also not a very big part of the game. So it's um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing that um, for Eliminator, instead of normally it's a title track that is that's why if you say Cyberlord, you you think about the. Uh, the, the main title. If you think about Cyber, you think about the main title. But if you think uh, Golden Axe, you think about the main title. If you think about any game, you think about the main title. But the Eliminator, the first tune playing in any uh, little set files and stuff, the set play, it's going to be the in-game tune. Well, I loved your production of Golden Axe as well on the Commodore 64. I thought, you know, again, so it was a game I played at the arcades before. But you managed to capture it and give it its kind of own unique spin. But yet there was still the sound effects and everything were in the game too. I mean, was it often tricky to kind of work around sound effects and music at the same time when you had both playing? Actually, um, uh, at that time, I think we did not yet incorporate the fact that uh, there was channels reserved for the music and channels reserved for the sound effects. Mm. It was uh, Charles always used uh, the sound. Well, we had a priority player basically. Uh, which actually kind of worked uh, well. Uh, I thought it was a bit. I think it was disturbing, but that because of perfection of the music, that some some music would drop out and a sound effect would play on top of it. It's actually a good way to 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 increase polyphony, poly, poly, polyphony. But um, I thought it was a bit disturbing. I mean, why not just use one channel for the sound effects and um, two channels for the music? Then you know they will not interfere with each other. It will sound extremely tight and and professional, basically. And I used all these tricks to make like a kick, snare, hi hat, bass, everything in one go. Where it would sound like three channels for one channel, and then on the other channel would have the melody, arpeggios, uh, percussion, and everything. It would sound like another two, three channels. So um, it could suffice uh, with those two channels if you used the right tricks and um, had in mind it was only going to be on two channels. Then you could really dedicate the, the third voice to completely sound effects, for example. Uh, where I could, uh, well, I actually started doing this with uh, Afterburner, I think, yeah. And I made all these uh, two-channel um, uh, tracks, and then the third channel would be reserved for sound effects, which was, of course, very desirable for a game with uh, with a, a jet fighter, because <laughs> there's the constant noise of, you know, all these sounds. Well, how much of a change was it when kind of, you know, later systems came in, like the Amiga and like CDI with like CD sound and stuff? Um, huge change. Um, took a while to get adjusted to a little bit too. Well, Amiga was, um, yeah, that wasn't too hard. I mean, instead of uh, doing FM synthesis, actually together with a friend, I made FM synthesis routine on Amiga. But some, that somehow it's a bit of a logistics problem. We never got to finish it when I was already asked to come to London, uh, working with Dave Perry on Supremacy and everything. And he like uh, fixed uh, the player I was working on with um, a guy called Bim Verhees. He was um, part of the, the of the demo group Madness. Anyway, I was I was part of that. And the artworks was part of that too. When I was a kid, and he was like, uh, he did this quick Amiga routine for me. But it was fun to do. But it's a, it's a whole different way of working. Especially FM has this natural sound and samples. I mean, if you pitch up a sample of a piano, you can just pitch. This is this is the sample that's been pitched up. You can hear that unless you you sample every note individually. And you know there was not memory enough for that. Anyway, people liked that sound somehow um, because it was all new and, and fresh, and samples were awesome. And uh, but I I was bit of a purist in that area because I was a bit hesitant to actually work on many Amiga uh, soundtracks. I rather did the, the Commodore 64 stuff and Nintendo stuff because it was FM based. But anyway, the, 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 in, in some point it became ina- inevitable that, you know, music is going to be streamed now. It's going to be about uh, mixing. It's going to be about uh, having, well, not unlimited uh, tracks. But mo- mo- I think most of it still was, uh, um, we went to XM modules 
we had like 16 to 32 channels of uh, music. Um, you could really, yeah, use a lot of, a lot of polyphony uh, things to actually make something sound really good. Uh, still be very compact, compact in size, because that's what the whole thing that the games were still about, that you had to be a certain size uh, to fit on a disc or a cartridge or something. Um, but then, of course, they, they became the real, like, the streaming. The, the streaming revolution was, like, 1994, 1995, when everything could, could actually be done that way. That could be, I will not say real music, but let's say music from a music studio, where you don't have limits. I mean, if you want to use a thousand samples, okay, a thousand synthesizers, you can, you can do it on top of each other if you want. In recent years... We've seen a massive resurgence of chip music, like you mentioned before, with kind of indie titles coming out and like retro's cool at the moment. Have you seen oh, yeah. like a resurgence of interest in your older stuff, like from back in the eighties? Oh yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things going on. I actually uh, made the I'm actually doing the music for uh, a game called Pixel Racing. <laughs> it's it's it is uh, let's say new school programming, but there's old school uh, 8-bit graphic style. Yeah, uh, there's Thunder Wheels, which is also a bit based on um, retro gaming racing game. Uh, and I see all these games coming out, all these yeah in, in the in the projects. But uh, okay, of course, Minecraft is of course a very good example of uh, that. Pixel game can do really really well. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, this retro gaming thing is coming back because okay. We have Grand Theft Auto Five. Now we know what we can do, okay, and how far do you want to go with that? That's going into a certain direction. But I think the genre has never left because there was always a market for it. But it was a bit snowed under because everybody had to run for the money. Um, but you know, people got interested. The new generation, especially, they got interested in this whole retro gaming stuff and even retro music stuff, retro paintings like uh, sprites, painting sprites, just that, you know. Um, because it's cool. It's old school cool. I don't know what it is exactly the trend, but I love it. It's it's um, it captures some kind of I don't know eighties vibe and eighties is back kind of thing. I don't know what it is. It's um, I can't put my finger on it, but I know it's there, and it's uh, well, I, I enjoy it. I really do. It feels good. It feels like uh, some kind of a reference to hippies times, you know. Like uh, I think in the uh, wasn't it like in the 90s and the hippies time was really like uh, glorified? Yeah, no, I think now the, 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 the 80s and 90s are glorified. That's like it always like the next generation later or something or the, yeah, I don't know what it is. Something like that. It's always something like that. Well, I think it's great that you're still involved in chip music and it, I can tell it's still something that you're really fond of and it's close to your heart. And it is amazing that you're getting a new audience for your classic material as well. And, the, you know, even like modern gamers today discovering that kind of classic style. I think it's wonderful that you're involved, Joran. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your memories with us this week. It's been really appreciated. My pleasure. And absolutely. Um, I love the, the 8-bit scene. It's, uh, it's my home. <laughs> it really is. Now, it's, it's, okay, music is my home, but it's, always, it's a very big part of who I am. Yeah, what I always loved to do, and, and yeah, my, my roots are definitely, definitely in there. You know, computer music, programmed computer music, I spend, I don't know, if I would say, I have to say this in, in my amount of hours, maybe 80,000, 100,000 hours doing this. I mean, how could I not feel connected to that? Yeah, I mean, I see the Comic 4 as an extension of my body at the time. And the same thing, I think, with anyone, the tennisser is a racket, and that's an extension of his body. Yeah, pianist uh, as a piano is an extension of his body, and that's how it works, I think. And long may it continue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I hope so. 